0: Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. One of my favorite sections of scripture. In your notes, you're going to see a few uh, textual notes that are typed up front. They don't have any blanks to them and I'm not going to preach them. These are just things that are important in understanding the text um, that I'm not going to go over. Uh, our series is Why Are We Named Foundation. A year and a half ago, if you're new, we changed the church name, and I've been looking for the opportunity, and finally got it, to plant some stakes in the ground. To go, why did we do this? What's the na- what is the beauty, what is the power, or even what is the functionality of this name? Uh, The foundation language cannot be separated from temple language in the Bible. And so we're looking last week, this week, and next week at three different texts in the New Testament that kind of give the big, uh, solid answers of who or what is the foundation of the church, of the people of God. Uh, One answer that we explored last week, Jesus' own words said, my teachings are the foundation. The wise man builds his life on my teachings, and when the storm comes... I thought it was just a metaphor. No, when the storm comes, his life will not come crashing down because he's built his whole life on my teaching. So that's what we did last week. This week is the most direct uh, point at which any New Testament writer just said, Jesus is the foundation of the church. So it's a little more clear, a little more cut and dry. Next week is gonna require a little more nuance where we hear that Jesus is the cornerstone. The foundation is everything the prophets were saying before him and everything the apostles said after So, a.k.a. the whole Bible. The Old Testament and New Testament are built entirely off of him. So that's where we're going next week. And these are the things that tell us who we are. The name was not chosen willy-nilly. We prayed a lot, and we did some hopefully spirit-sanctified democracy with votes and recounts and hanging chads, and then we ended up with a name. If there's a 25-year-old sitting next to you, explain the hanging chads joke, because it just... (laughs) try so hard. All right, so Jesus is the foundation of the church is the title of today's sermon. Just straight up, Jesus is the foundation of the church, and that is the second answer to the question, why are we named foundation? Let's read this text together. Paul writing to a church in Greece some 2,000 years ago, starting at verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people ouch. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready. How many times can the preacher offend the audience in two verses? Does that hurt? Does it hurt yet? Can you put yourself in the shoes of the Corinthian church? And the guy who started this church, first told you about the gospel, he was your first pastor, and now he's traveling, starting other churches. And in two sentences, he's made four or five references to your immaturity. Ouch. So do we want to listen carefully to where this immaturity is coming from and what it looks like? Yeah. Verse 3, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. Oh, no, that's where the immaturity comes from. You're jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you, aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says, I am a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like the people of the world? After all, who's Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God made the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. He transitions analogies. Something organic to something inorganic. And listen to how he takes it. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. You see how he couched that? I didn't build like an expert because I'm awesome. I didn't build like an expert because I'm smart. He said, God was gracious and allowed me to lay a foundation. Now others are building on it. But but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Does the human heart like to make life about something other than Jesus? Does the human heart want to make it about money? Does the human heart want to make it about the next romantic relationship or sexual pursuit? Does the human heart want to make it about climbing the ladder and feeling like a success? Does the human heart want to make it about finding my identity as a father to be ultimate and so my kid, I become a helicopter parent? No? It resonated with me. I'm in my 30s. so Yeah, I can, I can make this whole existence about anything. My flesh, I can make the whole world about anything. Put something at the center. Anything. My cause can be at the center. My education can be at the center. My friendship with so-and-so can be at the center. My dreams can be at the center. And the world in which we live is not going to push back against any of these things. Our world says, you do you. Our world says, shoot for the moon, and even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. I saw Apollo 13. If you miss the moon, it goes bad. Paul says, be really careful not to build on any foundation other than the one that's already been laid, Jesus Christ. He's the center of the universe. He's the point of your existence. You're a Christian now. Verse 12. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But, what does the word but tell us? I'm going to put a qualifier on what I just said. You can use whatever you want. In trying to glorify God and trying to build his kingdom and trying to strengthen your church, you can use any number of methods and ideas. But,. On the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. Fire is an Old and New Testament symbol of judgment, okay? So judgment is not always your sins have not been dealt with through the cross of Christ, I'm throwing you into hell. That is the big and ultimate judgment, but there are other judgments. God is assessing and weighing and purifying his people, including our entire life. We might be going into heaven, but like, hey, half of what you did was a waste of time. You don't believe me? It's coming up in the text. Okay. Uh, Fire will show if a person's work has any value. Verse 14, if the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Holy Spirit, would you please teach us the word today? Because without your help, we will add things to it that aren't there. We'll twist it until it makes us comfortable. So teach us, lead us unto all truth, as you said in John 1. Get exactly... Uh, out of this text, get the praise and glory and adoration and joy-filled submission out of each heart in this room, starting with me, God. Help me to submit to the text joyfully. Help us to love you and love each other and love the world more by the time we're done. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And God's people said. Amen. Amen. Grab your pen. Refusing to create factions in the church is mature faith built on the foundation of Jesus. Maturity looks like a lot of things, but in this text, refusing to create factions. That's what maturity would look like. Did you hear how Paul transitioned? This whole long rebuke, isn't it a show that you're controlled by your sinful nature, that you guys are forming factions around human leaders? It's a good thing we don't do that anymore. I'm glad we've matured beyond this. Right? We do it every four years. Oh, he went there. Oh, he said it. I challenge you, if I haven't challenged you enough, when it's politics season, keep looking for messianic language in the way people talk about their candidate. You're going to find it. False messiahs, all of them. And he goes from Aren't you, isn't it clear that you're controlled by your flesh flesh still, your old self, because you're fighting in factions and all of this? And then he transitions. What doesn't matter is these teams you're getting on. One plants, one waters. That's not what matters. What matters is that God is the one who makes it grow. He's drawing attention to God in the middle of the salvation process. God's the one who actually saved you. You know that, right? Apollos didn't save you. Paul didn't save you. You're saying amen because I haven't explained it yet. Guys, and this is hard. This is emotionally very difficult, but I need to take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out. This isn't in the notes. Some of you guys got saved in 1981 by attending a VBS, and you think the VBS is how you got saved, not realizing God saved you through VBS. See, no amens. Uh, I had a guy, when I was a youth pastor 16, 17 years ago, had a guy get really upset, um, yell in a number of church business meetings, and then leave the church, because our pastor did not want to pay the money anymore for an ad in the Yellow Pages. The Yellow Pages were a book, a very thin yellow paper. Anyway, (laughs) like Google? Yes, like Google, but print it out. Um, Because he saw the church's name in the Yellow Pages, came to the church, heard the gospel, and was saved by the Lord Jesus. Our sovereign God used the Yellow Pages in his life right? Praise the Lord. You you can't take, for example, radio ministry. Someone wants to proclaim the gospel through the radio. Are you going to judge Spurgeon in the 19th century for not using radio ministry? No. The church got along fine for 1,900 years before the radio was invented, right? So there are timeless truths of the gospel, and there are timely methods for how the gospel is delivered. These guys are going, man, Apollos is the one who preached to me. I'm on team Apollos. No, no, no. Who's behind Apollos? A loving God. A loving God spoke through Apollos. That's what he's trying to say in this. Your factionalism reveals an immaturity that I need to call out in you. And I chose to state it in the positive. Refusing to create factions, staying away from that. There's only one team, team Jesus. I mean, in the church anyway, there's only one team. Team Jesus. So I'm going to hold loosely to all secondary things, even if those secondary things were a blessing to me. Right? I, for one, growing up in the late 80s, I heard the gospel more from Sunday school than anywhere else. And so if you wanted to point to a methodology, as to why does Greg Kaiser a Christian? I would say Sunday school. But what happens when you go to a church that calls them small groups? Here's a little hint it's still Sunday school. It's just in somebody's house. And you usually get more food. Oh! Don't tell anybody, it's still Sunday school. All right. We can get wrapped around the axle about secondary things, and that's the crux of this immaturity we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 3. Maturity is to say, we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. His name is Jesus. So, going to go history nerd on you. I love me a good Greek phalanx, don't you? I know you woke up this morning going, I want some Greek military strategy. So we're going to make this very brief. For almost a 1,000 years, the only way to win on a battlefield in a certain part of Europe was a bigger phalanx because you could not beat these guys. A phalanx was not so much a... Um, it was more of an ideology than anything. A phalanx is you've got your shield on your left your spear on your right, and you are mortally, life and death, responsible for the life of the man standing to your left. Your shield is protecting him from arrows, not just protecting you. This is a deeply communal... So a phalanx was a unit. It wasn't a bunch of individuals. Again, we're Americans, so we struggle with this. Imagine being sworn, like on your grandmother's grave, you've sworn to keep the man to your left alive. That immediately creates a little bit of fear in the human heart that's inherently narcissistic. But guess what? There's a man standing to your right and he has sworn on his grandmother's grave that he's going to keep you alive. And this unit was pretty much undefeatable for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until the Romans modified it and they were jerks and the rest is history. So here's the deal. If you created factions in a phalanx, the phalanx were dead. The men of the phalanx were dead. Um, Julius Caesar, amongst others, figured out ways to get the group split. As soon as he could create a crack big enough for a horse to run through, he could see what were 800 impenetrable men. And he's, in his mind, he's like, I see 800 dead men. Why? Because I split them. As soon as you split a phalanx and all of their spears are pointing one direction, that means they're vulnerable from three sides. Okay? Have you had enough Greek history yet? I just don't know. I don't see it on your face. Here's the point. The church must be unified around one foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. Factionalism is lethal in the church. I've told the story before. I will keep telling it until I get a better story. There was a church of almost 800 saints here in Natomas that at the 2016 election, I don't know if you remember, it was a little bit contentious. And it was a little bit of a surprise. And it happens that on Tuesday, Wednesday is when all of the hullabaloo and church isn't until Sunday. There was so much vitriol on Facebook that half of the church did not show up on Sunday. There were about 350 people who showed up to church on Sunday. They didn't want anything to do with the other group. And, and what is this church now doing? They're firing staff left and right because they can't afford them. Half or more of the income is gone. The ministries are in tatters. Why? Because we would build our identity of how light is going to push back darkness behind a donkey or an elephant. It tore a church apart. And we can do this about anything, guys. The human heart is really, really capable, it's called idolatry, of building the whole kingdom of God on a secondary issue. But if we are unified, nothing could beat us. You cannot charge cavalry into a phalanx and win. Julius Caesar did it once, but he's Julius, okay? Mostly, there's nothing you can do, almost nothing you can do, except if you can find a way to divide. The church is the same way. How do you beat the church universal? Not gonna happen. Her head is Christ. But the local church, how do you tear apart a local family of believers who every single man, woman, and child say, Jesus Christ is my king, I follow his orders, I do so gladly, how do you beat a church like that? Anybody listen to, you know, screw tape, screw tape letters? Ask yourself, how would a demon tear it apart? These people love Jesus Christ and it manifests itself in love and good works. They read their Bibles. They do what it says. How would you tear that apart? They're learning to love God better every day. They love each other more every day. They love the world more every day. What are you supposed to do with that if you're trying to tear it up? Unity is powerful, and unity is commanded. Unity is mature faith. Next step, I want you, if you love Jesus, when you find your heart making a major deal out of something the Bible said is minor, repent. Repent. That's biblical language for make a 180 turn on purpose. You're agreeing with God that he is right. God, I'm wrong. I've been making such a big deal about this. Okay, honesty time. Raise your hand if you had a moment where you really, 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 really wanted to say something on Facebook and you thought better of it. That's almost every day if you listen to voices that make you angry, right? You wanted to jump into the fray. You chose not to. Some of you that happened over Thanksgiving dinner. You wanted to say something. Because Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There are things in our hearts first. And Jesus also said really scary things like, hey, you have been told that if you commit adultery... With a, you know what adultery is defined by, but let me tell you, if you even have lustful uh, intent, if you even have a lustful thought in your mind, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus is saying so much more than redefining adultery. He's saying, guys, sins start in the heart and then they come out, and it's already sinful and it already separates you from God for eternity before you even acted on it. You're angry in your heart. You haven't killed him yet, and God views you as already guilty. You're already guilty of the sin of murder. Yikes. So guys, let's look at what's in the heart. And when I see a molehill being made into a mountain, and how do we define mountains and molehills? The Bible. I'm sorry. I know you wanted an easier answer. You're going to have to read it. The Bible tells Greg, Greg, you're making a big deal out of this. Knock it off. That's your opinion. Greg, that's your political persuasion. Greg, that's your experience. Knock it off. Greg, that's your philosophy. That's not actually the word of God. This is the call to action if you love Jesus. When you find your heart making a major deal out of something the Bible says is minor, repent. Lord Jesus, I've made a big deal out of this. Please forgive me. I am right now grabbing it and moving it down to a lower shelf. It is not as big a deal as I have made it. And that is how we fight tribalism. Inside our own heart, before something even comes out of our mouth, we repent of making something too big of a deal. Number two, you can love Jesus and still build on a false foundation. Did you guys see that as we read the text? He said flat out, your works, your efforts to build the kingdom are going to be judged by fire. And even if it all burns... The builder himself might be saved, although just barely. You get into heaven and your clothes smell like fire. You're in heaven. Why? Because you don't get into heaven based on your works. Did you see that? You could build on the kingdom your whole life with wood and straw and still get into heaven. Why? Because I walk into heaven based on the goodness, the righteousness, the achievement morally of Jesus Christ, not of me. Will my clothes smell like smoke? That's up to me. Do I build my entire life with wood and stubble and straw, or do I build with gold and with silver and with gems? That's up to me. Do I build on the foundation of Jesus Christ the way the Bible tells me to, the things that the Bible tells me uses to to build? Because I know what you're doing right now. You're going, well, what's wood, stubble, and straw? You have 66 books to tell you what's wood, stubble, and straw. What's going to last? Faith, hope, and love. These three things remain, right? The greatest of these is love. Like, it's not hidden. It's not hidden as we read Scripture, what's going to last. It's not hard to go, will this still be there in heaven, right? Joy. Does that sound like it'll still be there in heaven? Yeah. Love. Does that sound like it'll still be there? Selflessness. Does that sound like it'll still be there? Attorneys. Right? Nobody's suing anybody. So I'm going to say the attorney is there by the blood of Jesus and finds a different job, right? It's not that difficult to ask ourselves what fits a biblical revelation is probably the the fastest place to go and go, what fits there? What fits in God's perfect and redeemed uh, world? That's what we build the church off of. We build the church, I don't know, connecting in authentic relationships with each other because the same blood that reconciles me to God has reconciled me with you. We grow in Christian maturity. We take Sunday morning seriously. We sing like we're saved. We respond to the word of God with joy-filled repentance. We serve God and others because we are servants. Our Savior is a servant, so must we be. We tell others about Jesus. All of these things are gold, silver, and gems. We don't put the stubble and straw on banners. Although that would be kind of sadistic and passive-aggressive. We should do that. Here are all these lesser gods. Don't worship them. Um, So you can love Jesus and still build on a false foundation. Um, Now I'm going to get personal. Everybody take a deep breath. So starting in the 1980s came the low-fat and non-fat craze. And I was raised in a family that was in the thick of it. I don't know about you. But there was this belief, because it's what we were told, that as long as the food you're putting into your body says fat-free or low-fat, everything's going to be great. If you want to have fun, look at, you can Google it, these, these, Yahoo Finance is easier. You can Google and say, and say, what were the sales of low-fat dairy in the United States, and you find a chart, and then Google a, a second question, or Yahoo Finance, the growth of gyms. The gym, this business where you drive to there and you exercise there. There are these two charts that go up and to the right at the same time. Because you know what nobody was telling us in 1981, but every scientist knew? When we take the fat out, it doesn't taste good anymore, so we have to put sugar in it until it tastes good. Nobody was telling us that in 81, okay? So we're getting all of this sugar, we're getting fatter and fatter. Does that mean that my mom was abusive to me and my sister by feeding us low-fat foods throughout the 80s? Was my mom abusing me? Was she negligent? No. She was lied to. She was putting into our bodies the exact same stuff that she and and dad ate. We all ate the same thing. And there was no ill will from mom and dad. They are operating off of what they've been told, okay? Brothers and sisters, every person around you who loves Jesus is trying to build the church global and the church local, and they're all doing it the very best they know how with the information that they have. Mm, No, that didn't resonate. Take a deep breath. The person next to you with a ministry idea you just hate, they still love Jesus very much. The person sitting behind you, don't look. The person sitting behind you, who's really, really dedicated to this way of doing evangelism, and you think they're nuts, they love Jesus just as much as you do, maybe more. I don't know. Is their method right? Is their method wrong? Is your method right? Is yours wrong? Right? Humility, we don't have enough humility to just look in the mirror and assess our own methods, right? The text says that everything we worked on our entire life to build the kingdom is going to pass through the fire and some of it won't make it. God is the judge, not you, not me. So this is why we look to the book to find out what is made of gold and what is made of straw. God will tell us in advance. This is not... Guys, uh, we are not in a cosmic game uh, of let's, let's... let's make this group of Christians and let's see if they can figure it out. And and the ones who are good at honoring me, I'll, I'll honor them in heaven. Like, God is not sadistic like that. He has told us what is gold and what is silver and what is straw, right? We make all the time, we make mistakes in the building of the kingdom. We make mistakes in the Christian life. We make mistakes in how to shepherd our family. We make mistakes in how to expose our children to the gospel all the time because of how much we do or do not know the way, how well we've been discipled or how poorly we've been discipled. Um, this is off the cuff. Amazing conversation with my mom two months ago. And I, I, just, I don't remember how we got into this conversation, but I was talking about how I try to approach Ephesians 5. Husbands, lay down your life for your wives, just as Christ did for the church. Because you can't get around male headship In marriage or in the church, you can't get around it biblically. What you can do is get really uncomfortable because we're all affected by third wave feminism. So, what do you do with these texts? Is God a a misogynist? Like, what's going on here? And what I shared with my mom is, at least the way I understand it now, what I've been taught, I don't teach you guys who love Jesus and are married or hope to be married one day, I don't teach you that you're in charge of your family and you make all the decisions. You can try that, but you're going to be dead by day two, and we're all going to laugh, okay? Spiritual leadership is humbly serving your wife, washing her feet, dying for her. Spiritual leadership, this is the way I described it to my mom, is don't make your wife get you out of bed on a Sunday morning and drag you to church. Spiritual leadership is Hey, honey, I think I want to start reading a children's Bible to the kids every night before bed. What do you think? Initiate, Dad. Initiate. Spiritual leadership is, heaven help us, this is happening. Our our church stopped teaching the Bible as true. Honey, I think we need to go. Spiritual leadership is, things are hitting the fan, and you reach over when you're exhausted and you want to just fall asleep. You reach over and you grab her hand, and you start praying. No Christian wife I have ever met has come to me upset that her husband wanted to pray or read the Bible to the kids or start a devotional together. Spiritual leadership doesn't mean you get the remote. It doesn't mean you choose whether we buy the house or don't buy the house. You're not in charge. Is that the way that Christ serves us? He is in charge because he's God, but he has taken on the form of a slave and of, of humility. So I described my understanding of what spiritual leadership of the home is and my mom said to me, what I, the few things I rattled off, and she said, wow, Greg, if somebody had said that to me 35 years ago, the way that you just said it right then, I wouldn't have been so afraid of male leadership of the home. But nobody ever said anything. Nobody ever told me what it meant. My mom was in church since she was like five days old. As she said, she was never told what does a godly husband's leadership of the home look like. She was just never told. It was never taught on. Guys, we've got to be gracious with each other. You have no idea what you were taught by a wonderful Sunday school teacher 10 years ago, 25 years ago, and you have now taken it on as assumed. Well, of course, everybody knows that. Who feels stupid when somebody, you didn't know something, and somebody else goes, well, everybody knows that. Right? It, it's, it's shame. It's right? You have no idea what the person next to you has been taught. So grace is the only way forward. We're going to have to be kind and gracious and non-judgmental. It's the only way forward. Here's how it's been said for 1,700 years, depending on who you ask. It was uh, Augustine or somebody said this. It's been repeated for so long. On essentials, unity, we don't mess around with whether Jesus actually died, actually offered his holiness to his church, actually took sin onto himself, actually rose. We don't mess around. Those are essentials. Non essentials liberty. Is Jesus coming back tomorrow? Is he coming back later? Is he going to look like this? Is he going to look like that? Uh, Arminianism, Calvinism these are secondary doctrines. Liberty in all things, charity, kindness, and grace. This is how we are to treat each other. Practical. Be kind with your siblings, honest attempts to honor God, and be fervently biblical with your own attempts. My daughter's excited because she guessed a blank. (laughs) Be kind with your siblings, honest attempts to honor God. Be fervently biblical with your own attempts. Do you see what I did there? Grace for somebody else, Humble submission and accountability for me. It's really easy to want to be gracious with my own interpretation of Scripture. Well, I'm pretty sure my ministry idea is biblical because uh, I said so. (laughs) Go back to the Scriptures. Always take your methodologies back to Scripture. Every part of the Christian life, take it back to Scripture. Third, we are God's temple, so this building is not... We are God's temple, so this building is not. uh, I say amen uh, multiple times over since I got here. We've had more than one water crisis with this property. And I've thought if there is a second flood of some (laughs) proportion, obviously we're gonna have to meet somewhere else and hopefully the spirit of the living God still glorifies the Father through us. Uh, We've, for those of you who were here, we've preached a couple of times here at Leatherbees. We've been at the community center. Uh, the people of God, if we are not mobile, then we have to totally rework our temple theology, right? Before the curtain in the temple was torn top to bottom at the death of Jesus, we had to come to God at a building, at a specific place designed by God, and this is how you interact with God. And here are all the rules. Jesus changed everything and said, I'm going to wash a people in my own blood and I'm going to put my spirit in them Jesus didn't say that. It had been said hundreds of years before. He just fulfilled it. He sent his Holy Spirit into his people. And are you ready? Made us the temple. Guys, this is a big deal. And I'm grateful. It seems that this church has been very blessed in this way. I mean, look at the carpet under your feet. 30 years ago, when we were building this building and designing it or whatever, um, we were comfortable with using this space as mixed use. We're volleyball games and basketball games. I know those things make Melissa's left eye twitch. Uh, the idea of balls bouncing around with all the technology we have in here now. But the idea that ministry to people is sacred, not the carpet. Maybe it's a bigger deal to me than some of you. I, I've been in places where the carpet was sacred. You ever been to a church or heard about a church? Kids are running, and instead of celebrating that these little kids are running, they're getting an angry finger in their face and no running in church. Like, church is a place instead of a people. And grumpiness. I'm so grateful. I'm I'm so proud of you guys. I haven't sensed the slightest whiff in this church of accidentally thinking God only shows up in this building. That would be tragic wrong belief on our part. What is evangelism? What is the spirit of the living God going out and seeking saving the lost if God only shows up in a building? That's really weird. It was very true 2,000 years ago, but it's not true anymore because the scriptures are saying we are the building. Uh, We've been singing this really good doctrine for a couple years now. Let me point it out to you. We just sang it this morning. First two lines, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Second two lines, we. We won't be quiet, we shout out your praise. Question, are these the same thing or are these two different things? Did the writers pivot onto a second idea in the middle of the chorus, I guess is what I'm asking. Do they pivot onto something totally different or is this the same? Because if they're students of their Bibles, this is all the same. The subject of the house of the Lord, and then go to we, would be a nice doctrinally, would be very nice. Yeah, the house of the Lord is the one singing praise. Well, let's just go to the bridge to answer it. We know exactly what they think. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We're the prisoners, now we're running free. We're forgiven, accepted, redeemed by his grace. Let the house of the Lord. How does a building sing? right? Buildings don't sing, but the house of the Lord does. So uh, I'm not saying this to criticize because we've all done every single elder in this church, every staff member, every one of you, probably we have said, isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord today to start a Sunday morning service? Not accurate, but we know what we're saying. So let's all be chill about it. Okay. What we're saying is it's good to be with God's people. If something happens this week, and frankly, it could, and I'm calling up the manager at Leatherby's again, saying, can I preach at Leatherby's again, and we all meet over there next week, Lord Jesus, please. No, I'm on a new diet, I can't, dang it. If, we're pre- if I'm preaching at Leatherby's next Sunday, we could rightly get together, start singing some songs, and I could say, most accurately say, wouldn't it wouldn't be. Nice? isn't it nice to be the house of the Lord? But I could say, isn't it nice to be in the house of the Lord? And Leatherby's is the house of the Lord this week. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of the living God fills his people and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. A little bit of church history goes a long way. So many church services have been under a tree in the last 2,000 years. Church services have been in graveyards and catacombs. Church services have been in office buildings. Where the Spirit of the Lord is in his people, there is the temple of the living God with Christ as the foundation. And this is critical because, again, like last week, we are the place that is welcoming people toward Christ. Here's the altar. Here's the cross. Here's how you relate rightly to God. It is our privilege. We are the temple. We are the priests. The cross is the altar, and Christ is the sacrificial lamb. The church of the living God, across all languages and tribes and tongues, we are where people go to interact with the living God. What do I want you to do? I want you to invest in the church ten times more than you invest in the building. I love me a good capital campaign. Don't you guys want me to say something really inspirational and pass a plate around? We need a new building. We need 5.76 bazillion dollars. And those aren't bad if if that's truly what's needed. But you know what the temptation is for me? I'm not gonna speak for you. For me, I can see the building. Right? Some of you guys remember the old carpet on this stage? We needed two priests and some holy water. We had to deal with that carpet. And praise the Lord. The building you can see. It's much harder, and this is what your elders are working on all the time, to say, how is the flock doing? Where can the health of the flock be blessed and strengthened? Brothers and sisters, invest in this church way more than you would ever invest. I mean, it's very kind. We've we got people picking up trash on this property or maybe you take out the trash or maybe who knows what you might do related to this building. You see a chore that needs to get done and you tackle it. And that's, we're very grateful for that. It's just, this isn't the temple. This isn't the temple. The temple is priceless. The temple has been purchased with the blood of Jesus. This building hasn't. We have a mortgage to prove it blood of Jesus says paid in full. We wouldn't have that mortgage still if, if this was the temple. So brothers, invest deeply in relationships. That's how you, that's how you invest in the church. Do friendship deeply because that's how the one and others of Scripture are lived out. Invest in serving one another. Invest in praying for one another and with one another. Invest in teaching somebody else the word of God. Some of you guys are very intimidated by this word teaching, and I'm here to tell you, if you just learned something about God yesterday, in your joy, you can turn around and share it with somebody else, and you just taught. You just taught. Brothers and sisters, invest in this family 10, 20, 100 times more than you would ever invest in trying to make a building look pretty. This family is worthy of your investment because Christ proved with his own blood that this is the investment he wants to make I'm going to pray for us, all right? Lord Jesus, would you please take the word foundation and make it rich in every mind and every heart of the saints that call this family their home? Would you make it something biblically beautiful? But we're excited, God, that when the storm comes, our life doesn't have to come crashing down. That we can be unified out of this radical belief that Jesus Christ actually emptied his own grave. Make us a unified people, God, for your glory. Make us unified in our love for the world and for each other. God, help us to drink in this text and to obey it gladly. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.